Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. This painting, because of the format, because of the type of composition, it became a model for generations yeah. to come. In this episode, curators Davide Gasparato and Keith Christensen discuss three paintings by the early Baroque master, Caravaggio. The late 16th and early 17th century Italian artist Michelangelo Merisi, better known as Caravaggio, is among the most admired painters of any time. His blend of classical forms and emotional realism and the passion of his subjects transformed European painting in the early years of the Baroque era. Recently, the Getty Museum had the good fortune to have three Caravaggio masterworks on loan from the Galleria Borghese in Rome, Boy with Basket of Fruit, St. Jerome, and David with the Head of Goliath. These paintings reflect three different periods in the artist's short but intense career. As in the prior episode on Bellini, I invited two curators, Davide Gasparato and Keith Christensen, to discuss the paintings on view. Davide is senior curator of paintings at the J. Paul Getty Museum, and Keith is the John Pope Hennessy chairman of the Department of European Paintings at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Davide and Keith go into great detail in their discussion. I encourage you to visit our website to view images of the paintings or look them up elsewhere online while listening. The Borghese Gallery is the collection of one of the great collectors of yes. 17th century painting, Scipione Borghese. Antiquities, one of the great patrons of Bernini, and these are all pictures that he personally acquired. Yes, in fact, uh, the Galleria Borghese has the largest collection of paintings by Caravaggio in the world. And Scipione, yes, actually he was one of the first uh, great patrons of Caravaggio. He was one of the few people he actually acquired one famous altarpiece which Caravaggio painted for the St. Peter Basilica, the Madonna dei Palafrenieri, which was at some point rejected. And since he was an admirer, an early admirer of Caravaggio, he purchased it for its own private collection. So he was really a sort of a talent scout. And, and he was also such an avid collector mm-hmm. that... He was one of the people who tried to get Caravaggio back in Rome after Caravaggio had fled Rome after a tennis match with rivals in which one was killed. He had been among those who were working to get a papal pardon so that Caravaggio could return. And when Caravaggio dies en route back to Rome, the first thing on Scipione Borghese's mind is how to get the pictures that he had ordered from the artist. Mm -hmm. And he sends an agent back to Naples to the Colonna household to find out where the pictures were. So the pictures he has really have a fascinating story. Davide and Keith began by looking at David with the Head of Goliath, which was painted in a somber and more expressive style near the end of Caravaggio's career, around 1609 to 1610. The painting measures about 49 inches tall by 40 inches wide. I believe that uh, some scholars, perhaps Maurizio Calvesi, you know, suggested that the David with the head of Goliath uh, was in some way a picture that Caravaggio executed for Cardinal Scipione Borghese in a sort of an act of uh, penitence, yeah. and because in the painting there is this young David with the sword 
It's a single figure painting. He's against a black background. There is a curtain on the left uh, upper corner. And so sort of uh, coming out from his tent, probably. Mm-hmm. And, and he's holding the head of Goliath, a terrifying head, which has the features of Caravaggio himself, which is a self-portrait of Caravaggio. So there is this sort of departure from an established tradition where sometimes the artist uh, portrayed himself as David, but here Caravaggio portrays himself instead of as David as Goliath. What do you think about yeah, this? I think this is absolutely true, and uh, it becomes more interesting when we recognize that the young man holding his head mm-hmm. appears in other Caravaggio paintings, and we can almost certainly identify him as Cecco di Caravaggio, mm-hmm. who had an association with Caravaggio as model, mm-hmm. as probably an assistant, and as his lover. Mm-hmm. So this is a picture of Caravaggio, victim not only of the conquering hero, David, but as the victim of his love mm-hmm. for the young oh, man. Interesting. You know, the story of Judith and Holofernes, yes. we have also representations where Judith is the lover and Holofernes is, is the man who is the victim of her beauty. Yeah, yeah. But also we know that in the Christian tradition, David is the symbol of humility, uh, which overcomes pride. That's right. And, and so in some way, maybe here Caravaggio is making a statement that he is uh, sort of humiliating himself in front of the Pope in some way, or showing that he is repentant. Then. But you know, the thing that it strikes me uh, in this picture mm-hmm. that it always has is that there's a melancholy in this picture. Yeah, totally. And the figure of David who looks at Goliath is clearly looking at him not with a, a visage of triumph mm-hmm. or of arrogance or of useful audacity, mm-hmm. but he's looking at him with a sense of loss of life. He does have a victim, and he's the agent I of think, having uh, to made, me, made I think it, it's a very moving image because it... You know, the religious subject becomes something very personal, but at the same time, the entire painting becomes a meditation. Here is the artist meditating in front of the death in general, not only of his own death, of his own mortality, but it's meditating on human mortality in some way. Yeah, I think it's worth reminding people that For artists in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th century, the great stories from the Bible or from classical mythology became vehicles for expressing human sentiment, relations between humans, humans in their relationship to nature, and for Mm -hmm. presenting the great emotions. And Caravaggio was certainly the artist for whom painting was a stage for emotions. Yeah. Davide and Keith then turned to St. Jerome, which dates 1605 to 1606 and measures about 44 inches tall by 62 inches wide. The painting portrays the saint as a scholar in the dramatic, spotlit manner for which Caravaggio is best known. I have to say my favorite pictures among these three is the Saint Jerome. Yeah, I think the Saint Jerome is a, is a fabulous picture. It's a particularly moving picture for, for several reasons. Do you know why you like this? Uh-huh. Why? Because it's of a scholar. <laughs> Jerome was the great scholar, yeah. the one who translated yeah. the Bible into Latin, which yeah. was then the common tongue. Mm-hmm. And he's shown bent over a book, 
carefully examining it. He's holding a quill pen in his right hand, mm -hmm. and he's dipping the quill pen into the ink in, 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 to in, write in, his well, translation. Yeah, yeah. But sitting before him is another stack of books, on top of which is a skull. Mm -hmm. And he himself is not dressed. He just has a red robe yeah. thrown over his shoulders. He's an old man, and Caravaggio has focused directly on the bald head where the light hits. Yes. So he's an old man towards the end of his life, still busy at work in his very simple study. We don't have any vision of the study. It's a blank background, but the table is an incredibly simple one. Simple. Everything is so Everything simple. Everything is simple. The background is uh, neutral, and, and there is this concentration in some way on these, I would say, three elements. Uh, the head of Saint Jerome, the skull, which is sort of contrasting, and then this hand in the middle with the pen. Do you think it says anything about his legacy, which is his writing, and his realization that after death it's his work mm -hmm. as a scholar that will live on, or is this too self-centered? <laughs> Maybe it's too self-centered, I don't know. <laughs> but the other thing I think it's important is, uh, which is I think typical of Caravaggio, especially in this phase, but in, in this entire painting, this sort of staging. Yeah. It seems so natural, the figure, the portrait seems so natural, the portrait of an old man, uh, you know, with the flesh, uh, kind of decaying flesh. But at the same time, the painting is very staged. The stage in the studio is staged in That's a right. neutral space, in a fictive space. So I think Caravaggio makes us aware that this is real, but at the same time is a sort of a theater. You remember that? Mm -hmm. Caravaggio was criticized in his own lifetime because yeah. he liked to paint directly from the model. He didn't like yeah. the whole process of Michelangelo, yes. which drew from the model, and then it goes through a process of idealization so that the final figure is an ideal mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. depiction of humanity yes, in general. Yes, yes. He wanted the specificity of the model itself. Yes. And also he, he was criticized because he was painting, as Bellori, I think, says, histories without action. That's right. Because if you paint a posed model, yeah. you risk losing the quality of movement, of having yes. time introduced into the picture. Yeah. But at the same time, there's extraordinary artifice in this. Yes. And if you notice, the light, of course, always comes from the left, high, raking across the figure so that you get these marvelous highlights on the forehead, on the nose, on the eye, the shadows of the skull, and so forth. But the lit portion is against a dark background. Yes. And the darker portion, which, which is the red robe in shadow, is against an arbitrarily illuminated background, which he needs to separate the background from the foreground. So there's artifice involved in this. Yeah. It looks incredibly naturalistic in the most general uh, meaning yeah. of the term, but in fact he's carefully contrived this yeah, yeah. for a staged effect. I believe we know that at some point we have documents that he made a hole in the roof of his room where he was living you know, to have this sort of natural light coming up from, from the roof. And uh, yeah, it's amazing. And the other thing that strikes me in this painting is how it opens the entire Baroque uh, season, the entire 17th century painting, because of the format, because of the type of composition. It became a model for generations yeah. to come, I think. Well, the whole new process of painting, which was to use models to paint from directly, which immediately suggests a different rapport with reality in the world of everyday life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm but also the focus on pictorial effects 
achieved through a very quick brushwork, such as if you look at that highlight on the forehead, you'll see one, two, three, four quick little brush strokes. Yes. If you look at the eye, you'll see one quick brush strokes. The eyes are not actually mm-hmm. defined. We're already halfway to Manet yes. in 19th century painting. Yeah. So we would not have Velázquez, we would not have Ribera, we would not have any of the great figures that we view as, as the harbingers of modern painting, of 19th century painting, without Caravaggio's fundamental innovation. Yeah. We have a painting currently hanging at the Metropolitan in which a classical story is depicted using a real figure. It's the story of Midas washing the curse away from where everything turns to the Midas touch, everything uh-huh. turns to gold. Yeah. And it becomes a personal existential crisis, not a classical story that's, yeah. that's retold. And this is true of the Jerome. You feel the presence of this figure potentially in the everyday. In the table, there's no emphasis on, on it being a table, a Roman table. It's a table that's of use in the, in the early 17th century. Finally, Davide and Keith looked at Boy with a Basket of Fruit from the beginning of Caravaggio's career when he was painting realistic genre scenes and still lifes. Painted from 1593 to 1594, the painting measures about 28 inches tall by 26 inches wide. We've, yes. gone, we've gone sort of backwards, yeah. but the early picture the, is about somebody from everyday the life. Boy, the boy with the basket of fruit. It's, a, it's an amazing painting. I have to say, to, to see it here, uh, not in the very busy gallery of the Galleria Borghese, is really a sort of a very revelatory. It's so different from the other more mature, I think, paintings. Yeah. But at the same time, yes, you feel the continuity of Caravaggio's interest toward uh, the representation of reality in some way. Even if this is also posed, it's staged. Absolutely absolutely staged. Almost certainly painted for the market, for an open market. New phenomenon in Western painting that the market is is the means through which painters become known. He arrives in Rome. He's an unknown figure. He has to struggle. He works with various artists. This was actually owned by an artist that he worked Mm -hmm. with, uh, the Cavalier d'Arpino, who was a bit older than Caravaggio, just a few years, but but who had a huge reputation. And he also had a stock of paintings. And that's how this picture ends up with Scipione Borghese, who confiscates the group of paintings. The picture done for the market means that the artist has an opportunity to invent without attachment to any commission or program imposed Mm -hmm. on him. So the thing that's astonishing to me is that he puts in the foreground an extraordinary depiction of a basket of fruit Mm -hmm. with grapes, peaches, peaches, apples... These, I think these are these little pears, aren't Figs, they? Uh, yes, yeah, and, sort of pears. And yes. the leaves, which are quite extraordinary, and particularly the one in the foreground, which has a hole in it, eaten, oh, yeah. which, which so it's he, a, he, a corrupt nature. Yeah. And that, that's very important, that he never wants a perfected nature. He wants nature in its corruption, mm-hmm. just as he looks at the, the David with the head of Goliath, mm. and not as a triumphant story, as an, uh, as an allegory, but as a real tragedy. And the basket, too, is a very <sighs> simple basket. It's not a, the, one of the luxury baskets or plates or we see in some, for example, Dutch uh, or Northern still have, or in Bruegel, for That's example, right. which was a kind of a contemporary. And if you think that after Raphael and, and Michelangelo... Uh-huh. There seemed to be a great hierarchy of, of art in the arts. Yes. And mm-hmm. the height of that was yes. the ideal male nude figure. At the very bottom 
was still life painting. Yes. Because still life painting was viewed as simply copying from nature. Copy from nature. So what does Caravaggio do in this early work? He puts the still life in the foreground yeah. and the figure mm-hmm. reversed. And it's not an idealized figure. He pulls the shirt down yes. so that you see this awkward shoulder yeah. and collarbone yeah. so that it's a direct confrontation with the hierarchies of painting yeah. that he's introduced to. And this is what really got Caravaggio into trouble. And it's also yes, why he marks a revolution yeah. in painting. In fact, he would not accept the hierarchies. One, one of the few statements that is reported by the sources is that he was saying you know, that it takes much artistry to do a still life than a figure. That's right. So that's, I think that's very important because it's Absolutely. a totally reversing traditional hierarchies, hierarchies uh, that were coming from the tradition of, uh, of the 16th century, especially. And you know, you yeah. look at these grapes, and the marvelous thing about these grapes, he's got three different kinds of grapes. I'm a great lover of grapes when I'm, <laughs> when I'm in Italy. He doesn't have my favorite grapes, which are the musket grapes. And these are amazing because there is this sort of dust that's on them. They, they have the oxygen sedation on the skin, which we associate with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really an astonishing picture and leads up to uh, an independent still life that he does for Cardinal Federico Federico Borromeo, which is in the Ambrosiana in Milan, which is one of the first independent still life of uh, European painting. And it leads to an entire new season, even in this case, of the development of European painting. So let's talk a little bit about the boy, because the boy, once again, there's marvelous artifice. His head is set against a pale gray background, mm-hmm. and below him at intersecting diagonals are shadows, yes. so that his head is clearly highlighted against this. And he's looking directly out at the viewer. Mm-hmm. His mouth is parted as though he were speaking, yes. but there's also a seductive element to this picture. Mm-hmm. And this is one of these elements that has engaged scholars, because all of his pictures invite viewers mm-hmm. and almost seem to solicit viewers offering fruit for sale. There is this sort of a strong connection, there's a sort of a speaking likeness before Bernini with his, with his bust, with his portrait bust in marble, created this sort of the new genre of a portrait which is speaking, which is talking to the viewer, which is directly gazing the viewer. Even in this case, I think there is a, uh, the idea that this is obviously a real person and one of Absolutely. Caravaggio's friends, probably the Sicilian painter Minniti, no? Mario That's Minniti. Right. So it's even this one is a sort of a portrait of a real person. Now there is also in, this, uh, in art historical terms a very interesting confrontation between two opposing traditions. And one of them is a tradition of the area that you're from, Mm-hmm. The north. The north, northern painting, where there was already a tradition for a greater amount of naturalism. Mm-hmm. And the Roman tradition, descending from Raphael and Michelangelo, of idealism. And Caravaggio has arrived with all the baggage of his northern training and working from life with a sense of naturalistic description. Mm-hmm. And he confronts a Roman world yeah. that is opposed to this, mm-hmm. and he simply breakthrough. But to me, it's always extraordinary how from this starting point, from this half-length figure, from this genre paintings, which, you know, characterize the first phase of his career yeah. in Rome, then at some point suddenly he becomes the most amazing religious painter of his time and probably one of the most amazing religious painters of all time. His trajectory is, is incredible. That, yeah, yeah. that his calling card should be 
a modest scaled mm-hmm. genre picture. Yeah. And then he gets commissions for a major altarpiece and he shifts gears entirely and transforms the world of painting. And Jerome gives one a, a real clear sense yes. of, of, of what he's going to do yeah. in, in religious painting that will be earth-shaking. Already in 1603, word had reached the Netherlands that he had overturned the art world and that virtually all the foreign artists who were traveling to Rome were becoming followers of Caravaggio and adopting his methods. It was an extraordinary privilege to listen to these two passionate and articulate curators talk about paintings they know well and love. Their conversation brought me back to when I first studied these paintings as a student and the excitement that came from looking closely and patiently at works of art. Thanks so much for listening. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Thank you.